Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. I'm going to start out by directing your attention to wealthformula.com, where you can get all sorts of resources that are not available on this podcast. One of those is my best-selling book, Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth, which you can pick up a copy on on Amazon and pay me for. Otherwise, you can simply go to wealthformula.com and download a PDF version of that book. That was an Amazon number one bestseller. Also, if you can't get to a computer, you can also get that by simply texting me at 44222 and typing in Wealth Formula, one word. Don't let the autocorrect screw you up. That's 44222, Wealth Formula. Also on Wealth formula.com. You can also still get a hard copy version of George Newberry's Burn Zones book, which is about real estate investing, the good, bad, the ugly. And every real estate investor, anybody who wants to sort of go big in this arena, really ought to read that before proceeding. Now, George Newberry is also the president and founder of American Homeowner Preservation, one of our sponsors. AHP, as we call them, buys foreclosed homes for pennies on the dollar and then rents them back to owners instead of kicking them out. And in the process, is able to yield investors 12% cash on cash return, giving out his monthly checks. Love the business. I'm a big fan, and George Newberry's a great guy. So check that out at ahpfunding.com. Now, as some of you have probably noticed, I have been on a bit of an anti-conventional wisdom kick lately, and you've probably noticed that. So you see, I think that conventional wisdom is, in personal finance in particular, is really just a big Wall Street scam. Invest in stocks, bonds, and mutual funds for the long run. Why is that conventional wisdom? Well, who benefits if you continuously dump money into the equity markets? Well, the market makers, of course, and make no mistake, conventional wisdom can and will be manipulated by special interest, folks. I mean, all you have to do is look at the sugar industry in the 1960s. This is a true story. Harvard scientists were paid off by special interests of the sugar industry to suppress any link between sugar and heart disease and obesity, etc. And the result, the food pyramid. We all remember that pyramid as a kid, right? It was right up on the wall in the classroom. The food pyramid showed starchy foods like bread, pasta, and cereal as the base of the pyramid. The food you should consume the most 
And then decades later, this guidance has led to an increase in diabetes, obesity, coronary artery disease, you name it. Like the food pyramid, dependence on the equity markets for the long term will likely have consequences to your financial health. But it will be great if you're on the other side and if you're going to continue pillaging money from investors if you're a market maker, for example. The market makers, and when I say market makers, I'm talking about Wall Street, right? I'm talking about Wall Street and their minions, who we call the wealth advisors. They make money by taking your money. If you don't put money in the markets, they can't make any money. That's why they want you to put it there. And that's why real assets like apartment buildings and single-family homes, whatever, that people invest in, These people call them alternative assets, alternative assets, right? I mean, alternative doesn't sound very safe, does it? It sounds exotic and, well, risky after all, right? So who wants to invest in risky stuff when your money manager can put you into something that he'll call or she'll call a diversified portfolio of stocks, bonds, and mutual funds? Doesn't that sound safer? Listen, I could go on all day about this stuff, but I will spare you the rant. Instead, I'm going to direct you to this week's Wealth Formula podcast interview with G. Edward Griffin, who is the author of The Creature from Jekyll Island. And now, if you've never heard of G. Edward Griffin, you're going to need to listen to this podcast. Hint, the United States Federal Reserve Bank is neither a government institution nor a bank. Hear all about it as we come back with G. Edward Griffin. Worried about saving too little too late for retirement? The Wealth Accelerator may be exactly what you need. With the help of some of the oldest and most reliable insurance companies in the country, Wealth Accelerator allows you to take most of the upside of any good year in the stock market and use bank loans to magnify those returns significantly. And what if the stock market has a bad year? No need to fear. Wealth Accelerator is engineered so you don't participate in the losses of the market, no matter how bad of a year it is. Sounds too good to be true, right? But it's not. It's simply the same financial engineering that the ultra-wealthy have been doing for years. Now it's your turn. Check it out for yourself by going to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Today, my very special guest is G. Edward Griffin. Now, he's an author, lecturer, and filmmaker, which hopefully some of you have had a chance to follow some of his work. In particular, in 1994, he wrote The Creature of Jekyll Island, which exposed potentially one of our country's deepest secrets, I think. And this essentially was about the creation of the Federal Reserve System. So, Ed, thanks for being on the show today. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's one of my favorite topics. Great, great. You know, before we get started, I mean, obviously, you've had sort of a very broad career. You've done a a number of things in your writing and, you know, filmmaking, et cetera. How did you get into the topic of the Federal Reserve? What brought you to that? (laughs) I'm laughing because I haven't the foggiest idea. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of people have asked me that question. All I know is that way, way back in the beginning and the early 1960s, I was sort of on my early phase of my crusader career and I became very concerned about what's going on in the world. And I decided that, hey, I had to do something about it. I quit my job with a large um, insurance company. I was, you know, in the corporate world, I was climbing the ladder like a lot of young guys. 
And my wife thought I was crazy. She thought, you know, we were giving up a great future for me to go out and chase and try to sew buttons on soap bubbles, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, so it was in that phase that I was looking for some way to communicate with the world what I was discovering. And since when I was in school, I had studied television and drama and I had done some motion picture work. I'd worked in a radio station and all that stuff and television station. I decided that I was going to apply what I'd learned in my early career and make some little inexpensive documentaries. So I thought, okay, good. I'm going to become a film producer. (laughs) Didn't have any money, but uh, I was going to become a film producer. So I was looking around for topics. I did produce some simple little things. In those days, we called them film strips because they were strips of film with single frames in them, kind of like a PowerPoint presentation today. And uh, so anyway, I, I had produced some of those and I decided now I wanted to produce one on the topic of inflation. Didn't know much about inflation except that it was a lot of confusion and I wanted to get to the bottom of it. And so I started to do some research and of course, you don't have to go very far before immediately you wind up at the engine of inflation, which is the Federal Reserve. Well, that's when I began to learn about the Federal Reserve because I wanted to produce a film. And that's a long story, but that's how it started. One thing led to the next. And the first thing I know, I had boxes full of research. I put the research on hold for a few years and then came back to it and started to give speeches on it and realized that I was not qualified to give speeches on the topic yet. I had much more to learn. So I stopped that, went to school, uh, got my CFP designation, certified financial planner, not because I wanted to do financial planning, but because I wanted to know more about the real world of investments and money. So I got that. And then I started to do serious research. Seven years later, Buck, it took me all this time. I finally finished the book. It was just one billiard ball bouncing off of the side, hitting some more balls. Did had no idea where I was going with this. And that's how it happened. So for those of us who haven't had a chance to read the book, and it's an extensive book. It's a long book and there's a ton of information in there. Can you boil it down? What the heck is the Federal Reserve System? Yeah, it's an extremely large topic and seemingly complex topic. But, you know, like everything, uh, Buck, they can be boiled down. And I've learned how to do this when I've gone on the road and I've given lectures and seminars and topics like this. So every once in a while, somebody from a radio station or a television station will say, we'll give you 30 seconds on the news. What, what, <laughs> summarize what you have to say in 30 seconds or less. Right. And, well, we'll give you a little bit more than that. <laughs> what, you know, the point is, and what I'm leading to is you can do it, actually. It doesn't communicate a lot of information, but you can. So if I were to summarize the Federal Reserve, what is it? I would simply say, uh, before words, it is a scam. Okay. (laughs) Okay. I've summarized the whole thing. Now, you want to know more. Well, what kind of a scam? How does it work? Who did it? And so forth. But the reason I say it's a scam is because it does not do what most people think it does. And it is not even the entity that most people think it is. And furthermore, it is designed to plunder the population by a small group of people. So therein lies the explanation of the scam. First of all, what is it? Okay, it's not a government agency. It was hard for me to come to that realization because although I did not major in economics or banking in school, I had taken some 
courses on general economics. And I was taught in school that the Federal Reserve was an agency of the federal government, you know. And uh, so I thought, well, sure, of course, uh, they make the money, they, they issue the, the nation's money. And if you don't follow the rules of the Federal Reserve system, they put you in jail. So that means it's government, right? Well, mm, wrong. Uh, because what it really is, about it's a cartel. It's a cartel. Amazing discovery. It's no different than a banana cartel or an oil cartel. It just happens to be a banking cartel. And this cartel got together and met in secret, actually, under high conditions of secrecy back in 1910 on an island off the coast of Georgia called Jekyll Island. And that's where they laid the scheme and drew up the plan that became the Federal Reserve. That's the reason I called my book The Creature from Jekyll Island. Jekyll Island is real. It's off the coast of Georgia. It was a private club in those days owned by the billionaires of the country, the ones that uh, worked on Wall Street. They went to this island in Georgia during the winter months to escape the, the cold, harsh weather of New York. So that's where this group met in private under great conditions of secrecy. They denied that they went. They didn't want anybody to know and so forth. That's the story in itself. But what they did is they drafted a cartel agreement and then they spent a week doing that at this Jekyll Island Club, which was the center of their social activities there. And then they came back to Washington, D.C. And if you can imagine a big eraser, a mental eraser, and they erased the title of the agreement so it no longer said cartel agreement. And they wrote in the words Federal Reserve Act. Now you understand the essence of what happened there in 1913, which was three years later when the agreement – under the name of an act, was passed into law. So that's why a private cartel agreement has the force and effect of laws because it was a law. It was passed into law. But that does not make it a government agency at all. So that's the first thing to know about the Federal Reserve is that it is not responsive to government. It uh, was created by the government because the bankers who engineered this were very influential in Congress. Of course, when you're a banker and you control credit, interest rates and the flow of money in the economy, you're a very powerful person and you can literally buy a lot of politicians. So even though you are not in politics yourself, you become like the hidden hand behind the throne, you know, you can manipulate politicians. And that's what basically happened. Most of the political figures of the time didn't really understand what they were doing, but they fell for the idea that this was somehow going to be good for America. That was the line that the bankers introduced. So we've got to defend America. Uh, we have to preserve uh, the prices, uh, make sure that inflation doesn't go rampant. Of course, that's a laugh because that's the Federal Reserve is the engine of inflation. That's what creates inflation. With the cartel in general, so you've got a group of bankers and, you know, they've got sort of the badge of some sort of legitimacy because they're called the Federal Reserve. What is it that they're trying to do? What was their aim? Well, their first aim was to prevent real legislation from occurring because just prior to this event, America had lived through a period of great uh, banking disasters. A lot of banks went belly up basically because they were operating on unsound business principles. They were telling people, for example, I'll try to make this short. They were telling people that if you put your money in the bank, we'll call it a deposit. That means the money is still yours, but you deposited it in the banks and the banks now have the responsibility of guarding your money. And oh, yes, we don't talk about it too much, but we can lend it out 
and we can earn interest on your money. And that is how eventually we can pay you some interest on your deposits. But if you want your money back at any time, you can just ask for it and it's there. We'll give it to you because nobody ever stopped to think, well, how can they lend it out and still have it there to give to you if you want it back? You know, it was an impossible situation. So they were making these what they in the banking industry, they call demand deposits, which means that the depositor was told that he could demand his money at any time and get it back. But by the same token, they were lending that money out and using it to create more money and leveraging it. And it really wasn't there except a very thin percentage, maybe three, four or five percent was actually there for people to take their money out if they wanted it. And so what that led to the famous bank runs when people started asking for their money like they'd been told they could. And the banks uh, suddenly ran out of money. It wasn't there anymore. And so they had to close their doors. There were, there were mobs outside the streets of the banks. There were threats against the bankers and uh, everything. It was terrible. Some of the banks went belly up. And so America had gone through that. And now the purpose, one of the main purposes of the Federal Reserve Act, as explained to the American people at least, was to control those big bad bankers. So that wouldn't happen anymore. So you see, on the face of it, the banks knew that if they didn't get out there and do something quick, there was going to be some real legislation that was going to control their industry. And they didn't want that. And so they decided to get to the front of the parade and they would write the legislation that would control their industry. And of course, they couldn't let anybody know that they were doing that, which is the reason for the secrecy on Jekyll Island. They had to get out of Washington, D.C. They had to get into a private clubhouse. And that's why they couldn't let anybody know that the banks themselves were drafting the legislation that was supposed to control the banks because then the cat would have been out of the bag. So that's what it was all about. It was how to write legislation in a way and using phrases and headings and so forth that made it look like this was somehow legislation that was going to control those big bad banks, but at the same time leave full control in the hands of the banks themselves, keep Congress and the Senate out of it completely, off way on the sidelines, and just give them carte blanche to do whatever they want. And then as a bonus, this is the most interesting thing to me, not only did they do that, but almost as an afterthought at the end of this process, they threw in a little cookie. The cookie was, but oh, while we're at it, let's have the government give us the power to issue the government money. Now, up to that time, the government was printing its own money, you know, treasury uh, notes, and it was gold backed, silver backed, certificates from the treasury. But now that they had this legislation going, it was a big opportunity. They said, well, look, let's just sort of take over that role too. We'll actually create the money. We'll let the treasury print it. We'll use their printing presses, but we won't call them U.S. notes or anything like that anymore. We'll call them Federal Reserve notes. Now it's our private money. So it was a tremendous coup. It was a coup d'etat where literally the banking industry just captured the financial heartbeat of the nation, took over the money supply, took over the right to regulate their own industry. Now they could control all banks so there would be no competition between them, serious competition. Maybe they could fight over logos or something like that, but not over interest rates. Those would all be fixed and so that everybody would be guaranteed a nice margin for profit. And uh, so there'd be no competition. So in a nutshell, Buck, that's what happened. They took over the money supply, the right to issue the money, and also to control their own industry, and nobody can touch them. So how does this affect us in terms of, I think you mentioned that you started this journey sort of in search of the idea of inflation. How does what the Federal Reserve System 
affect us? Obviously, it benefits the banks, but what does it do to us? Well, it does two things to us. So you could probably say three, four, or five, depending on how deep you want to dig the hole and see what's under the next layer. But the first thing it does, as you mentioned, is it inflates the money supply at a rate faster than the expansion of goods and services. And that results in more and more dollars chasing after the basically the same amount of goods and services. And that's what causes prices to rise. And so it's inflation. And that means that every dollar that you and I have saved in our lifetime is being taxed by this hidden tax called inflation. We don't even think of it as a tax, but that's exactly what it is. The dollar that was had a dollar's worth of purchasing power in 1913, today in equivalent purchasing power with those same goods and services can buy about three cents worth of those goods. It's worth three cents. So we've lost 97% of our savings. Anybody that was alive in 1910, not you know, not many left, but pick some middle point if you were alive in 1950 or 60. They got half of your savings and you didn't even know it. It's uh, You didn't know where it went. And it went to the banks and to the government. How did the banks get that? Because, I mean, I certainly you can see how it goes to the government, eroding debt, you know, over time, et cetera. But how do the banks benefit from inflation? I'm sure I, I'm just not quite seeing it, but I, I know it's there. Yeah, it's there. And they benefit because Inflation, another way of looking at it, is the money supply, an expanded money supply, lots of money, lots of dollars. Now, that's the inventory of a bank. If you were Ford Motor Company, your inventory would be automobiles. But if you're a bank, your inventory is dollars. And you make money on selling or renting your inventory. So the more inventory you have, the more money you can make. What that means is that if money can be created out of nothing, which it now is done by the Federal Reserve, you have an unlimited supply of inventory. It doesn't cost you anything to make. And yet you loan those dollars out at interest. Now, just think about that. You're collecting interest on nothing. Now, on that kind of a basis, you don't have to charge an awful lot of interest to show a profit. It's a nice business model if you can get it. It's a nice business model, yeah. And it took me a long time to figure that one out. I said, my gosh, it's right in front of my face. (laughs) Yeah. So the way the banks benefit is because they have huge pools of money they created out of nothing and they lend it out. You might notice that, uh, you know, Congress votes now for billions and billions of dollars for something. They never ask if they can afford it because that's not an issue because it's not a question of affording it because those dollars don't even exist at that time. They're created. When Congress votes for a $100 billion purchase of some kind, whatever it is, then they go to their buddies at the Federal Reserve and they say, okay, we'll create this money and then we'll loan it to you at interest. And there you have – that's where the banks come into it. It's interest on nothing. Right. Interest on nothing and then – actually being able to you know take those deposits and then even lending more out than you keep right so that's the other part of this which is the the fractional banking system yeah of course they have, they leverage it and so it's not just a, a straight linear mathematical formula it's actually exponential ed could you explain the fractional banking system i think is something that not everybody knows about and i'm sure you have a very elegant way of explaining that because i think that's an important point for our audience? Well, I don't know how elegant my explanation is, but it's pretty simple once you grasp it. I like to use the example of the federal government getting money from the Federal Reserve. It gets a little long and convoluted, but I try and make it simple. So here we go. This whole process of creating money starts 
with the Federal Reserve and the government. Now, they're partners in this arrangement. We have to understand that this cartel called the Federal Reserve has gone into partnership with the federal government. And that, too, is part of that cartel agreement in the Federal Reserve Act. It it creates a partnership between those two entities. Okay. having said that, let's say the federal government needs another billion dollars today like it did yesterday. But it doesn't have it in the till. It's not there, obviously, because the government's always spending beyond what it takes in in taxes. Not to worry. They just go borrow it from either the public or or the Fed. Well, it used to be that most of it was borrowed from the public because the public thought it was a good investment. But after years and years and years and years, that debt kept rising and rising so that even though the federal government paid back the first billion dollars it borrowed, it had to borrow another billion dollars to pay back the first billion dollars, plus some more to carry the debt for additional spending. You know, So that's why the federal debt keeps going up and up and up is because they're never paying it off. They're just expanding it. They're paying off old debts with new debts, only bigger new debts. So anyway, here's what happens. Uh, The Treasury official comes into the Federal Reserve office. Now, this is not actually that way. It's all done on computers now. But let's just imagine the Treasury official walks into the Federal Reserve office and he says, I'd like to get another billion dollars today, please. And the Federal Reserve chairman behind his mahogany desk, this is figuratively also, he opens up the drawer, pulls out a big black checkbook figurative checkbook. It's really a computer. And he opens it up and he said, okay, $1 billion. He writes the check, signs it and says, there it is to the United States Treasury. Bingo. It's done. He said, that's a nice loan. So the Treasury officer says, thank you. He walks out the door and down the street to the commercial bank that holds the government's deposit. He deposits that check back into the banking system (laughs) that the banking system just created. He goes back into them. And now it's a deposit into the federal government's account. And now, bingo, they've got a billion dollars. They can continue spending money, you know, all of the welfare and all of the uh, foreign aid and all of the graft and everything and some good things too along the way, but they got the money. Now, that's just the beginning. Most people think that's the whole picture. That's not the the enchilada at all. Actually, it's just the beginning of it. Let's take just one piece of that. Let's say $1,000 of that money that was just given or loaned, created, I should say, and then loaned to the federal government. Now, that $1,000 goes to Joe Smith, who is the guy that delivers our mail. Now, Joe Smith is a postman and he got a $1,000 check from the government. He's happy as can be because he's got money to spend and it's his wages. So what does he do with that check that he gets from the federal government? He takes it down to his bank. Now it's in, let's say, Bank of America or Chase Manhattan or Wells Fargo or Union City or whatever it is, local bank. Remember, all of these banks are part of the Federal Reserve System. It's the cartel. They're all part of it. And so he deposits the $1,000 into his checking account. All right, so now he's done that. Now he's got $1,000 in his account. And now let's go into the bank and see what happens to that $1,000. There's some people in the bank and some of them want to borrow money. And so let's take this fellow that wants to borrow money and he says, uh, he goes to the bank manager and he says, uh, I want to borrow $9,000, but I understand that this uh, postman only deposited $1,000 into your bank. Is that right? And the bank manager says, yeah, that's right. We just got this $1,000 deposit. And so the borrower says, oh, that's too bad because I need to borrow 9000 Now, at this point, the bank manager will say, 
don't worry about it, my boy. We can loan you $9,000. And so you say, well, how come? You've only got $1,000 from the postman. And the manager will probably say in his own way, hey, stop asking questions. Uh, Just take my word for it. We can loan you $9,000 because we're part of the Federal Reserve System and the rules and regulations for your protection, sir, the rules and regulations allow us to loan nine times more than we actually have on deposit, up to nine times. Actually, it's beyond that in some cases, but let's use that number as nine. So yeah, we got $1,000 deposited, but now we can turn around and loan you nine. How can we do that? Is well Because the rules require us to keep 10% of all loans in reserve. So we're going to take that $1,000 deposit and we're going to change the name of it from deposit to reserve. Now we've got a $1,000 reserve. That means 1,000 is 10% of $10,000. So we'll keep the 1,000 as reserve and we can loan $9,000, which of course doesn't exist, but we will create it at the time we make the loan. So now you see we have a two-tier process. The Federal Reserve itself creates money out of nothing to loan to the federal government. That goes into circulation through various ways. And once it winds up in the local banking system, which is where the real action is, then that 1,000 that was created out of nothing gets pumped up to another 9,000 created out of nothing. So for every dollar loaned to the federal government, The banking system can quite legally create an additional nine to one, and that goes into the economy. And all of that is created out of nothing, and they collect interest on it. And presumably that's what creates inflation, right? I mean, that's where all of the extra dollars. Well, yeah, that's part of it. That's exactly what creates inflation. Of course, some of that money has to be redeemed. It goes back into the till, so to speak. So they've got this up and down, up and down, and a lot of wave cycles. But in general, it just keeps expanding, expanding, and expanding, even though it's sort of a sawtooth pattern. You know, the top point of the sawtooth keeps getting higher and higher and higher. Right. And no wonder you see all the bankers make so much money. I mean, when you print it, it's easier, <laughs> it's, it's easier to keep in your pocket, right? Yeah, but bear in mind that they don't print it for themselves. They print it for you and for me, and and we're silly enough to pay them interest. That's right. That's right. That's where they make their money. So obviously when you think about this and you get some idea of, you know, what's going on, and obviously you've got this big artificial system of money for the most part, you know, where does this all lead? I mean, how does this end? That is a very spooky question. It ends in collapse of the monetary system. Okay, you cannot continue this. This is basically a Ponzi scheme and Ponzi schemes can last for a long time, but they can't last forever. So wherever it's been tried in history, the nation or the culture that has tried it has had a collapse of their economy. But there have always been uh, what we might today call the free market in place to step into the void and heal the wound and allow the system to rebuild. Okay, so it's been collapsed, but the system has still had life in it and it was able to heal and rebuild. And we saw that happen. Well, look at what happened in Europe. Look what happened in Germany after World War II. I mean, devastated country. The system was collapsed. The Weimar Republic economy was collapsed, but they rebounded again because of of basically the free market. People were able to be free to build and to create and to retain the product of their services, to take chances and risks and reap the benefit of taking those chances and risks. 
Today is a little different. Today, the whole world is being coalesced into one single international economic system. If it collapses today, and it looks like it's headed in that direction, there would be nothing left of that free market impulse. It would be totally destroyed. In fact, it's practically destroyed now. Everything we do in the field of investments and commerce, it's also regulated that it is almost indistinguishable from the Soviet system that we decry so much. We talk about, ah, the Soviets had everything and controlled everything, and that's why the system collapsed. And yet we look around us today, and everybody's clamoring for more and more controls, more and more controls, you know, occupy Wall Street. We want to take Wall Street and have the government control it, and they don't realize that Wall Street controls the government. (laughs) They don't get it, you know? And so they're clamoring for more and more of the same toxic poison that's killing them. So that's why I said it's a spooky question because this time around, it could be different and it could lead to the dark ages. That's why I am so adamant that we have to get people to understand this creature before it destroys us all. That is kind of a scary thing, and we'll leave our listeners with that message to think about. I I highly encourage people to go out there and read Ed's book, The Creature from Jekyll Island. It is fascinating. It's long, but it is pretty riveting, and it reads almost like a mysteries, you know, like a murder mystery or something like that. (laughs) Well, you know, but that's how I saw this story. There have been a lot of books out there on this topic, but they're all about banking practices and discount rates and textbooks. And I saw this as a murder mystery or a whodunit, great crime committed. And so that's how I that's how I wrote the book. So we have the creature from Jekyll Island. And Ed, if we want to learn more about your work in general, how can we do that? Well, thanks for asking that one. I have got a couple of websites, of course, the commercial site uh, where we sell all of these books and videos. So we have about 100 of them on topics like this. That's called realityzone.com, realityzone.com. But we have a think tank. We call it Freedom Force International, where we have nothing to sell but ideas. What we're trying to do is create a movement, a true international movement, where we not only can learn about problems like this, but we can actually do something about them. And that's a big topic in itself. I won't go into it except to say that we have a plan and we're very serious about it. And I think anybody that decides in their mind that they have that instinct that I discovered early in my life, that I had to do something about it, that they'll find a lot of guidance, a lot of companionship, a lot of good ideas at Freedom Force International. Freedomforcentrenational.org. Ed, thanks so much for being on the show today. Well, thanks for inviting me, Buck, and uh, I'm looking forward to doing this again. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with G. Edward Griffin. The book, again, is The Creature from Jekyll Island. This is a phenomenal book. It's also an encyclopedic length type book. So Definitely pick up a copy and read a little bit at a time. By the way, this is like Robert Kiyosaki's favorite book, and he follows around um, Ed Griffin. I mean, he is a big Ed Griffin fan, as I learned when I met him in April. So he certainly does attract a very smart and interesting crowd. So anyway, check that book out. It's The Creature from Jekyll Island. In the meantime, make sure that you take advantage of everything on WealthFormula.com, including my book, Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth, you can get that at wealthformula.com. You can also text me at 44222 and type wealth formula, one word.
and you can get that sent to you. So with that said, that's it for this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at WealthFormula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.